hello. Just continuing that posture of, of worship. Uh, we're going to enter into a time of just communal lament. Um, and friends, I, I have a little bit to say, but I also, I just want to invite us to embrace the fact that God is near, that he sits on the throne of the universe. Langston Hughes says, I'm so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. Luke writes of Jesus in Luke 19, as he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you even you had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of visitation from your God. Jesus weeps two times in the occasions of the scriptures. He weeps once outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He weeps at the prospect of death. He weeps as his friends are weeping. And then we see him weeping in Luke 19. As he looks upon the city of Jerusalem, they don't realize that their king, the king that makes for a way of peace, has come to them. And as he rides into the city triumphantly, he turns and he looks upon it and he, he's overcome with emotion because they don't know the things that make for peace. And as we sort of reflect on the events that just cascade, they, they pile up. It's not just that we can do one after the other, but we, we, you know, last week we're in here, we lament what happened in Buffalo. This week we see what happens in Texas. And I know there's this impulse. And, and, and it runs between two poles of like resignation like, oh, this is just what's going to happen. And anger. And I want to do something. I want to yell at somebody. And that's what we see so often on social media. Just yelling into the void. Raging against the dying of the light. But friends, as Jesus embodies for us, lament in the face of overwhelming evil is not just being an, a bystander. It's not just saying that, oh, come what may. It is access to the throne room of God. It is saying that we, in our own power, in our own estimation, don't have the things that are at our hands to be able to change these things, but it does say that there is a God who can. You know, there's this point in the scriptures where the disciples are casting out demons. They're encountering the forces, forces of darkness, and they encounter one that they can't cast out. And they come to Jesus and they say, why couldn't we cast that out as Jesus casts out the demon? He says, well, some only come out by prayer and by fasting. And friends, I, I don't know about you, but I, like Langston Hughes, I am tired. I'm tired of, of seeing this sort of cycle where we all sort of communally freak out and lament and, and break out, and then it's just like nothing changes. And so I, I want to call us to the thing that I think Jesus calls us to, to pray. To pray to God that, that this kind of violence that seems to be unique to American culture would be dissipated. And so I'm going to read a psalm, Psalm 10, and I'm just going to open up the space just where you are. 
I invite you to pray for those families, those dear families that we've, you know, many of us have read about in Uvalde, Texas. I invite you to lift them up. I invite you to pray for those families in Buffalo. And, and honestly, too, I, I feel this pressure because I can't name all the places that we should be praying for. And so if I'm forgetting one or if, if you feel like I'm not bearing witness to one side of the story, I'm sorry. But let us pray as we read the words from Psalm 10. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked persecute the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of their heart. Those greedy for gain curse and renounce the Lord. In the pride of their countenance, the wicked say, God will not seek it out. All their thoughts are, there is no God. Their ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of their sight. As for their foes, they scoff at them. They think in their heart, we shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, we shall not meet adversity. Their mouths are filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under their tongues are mischief and iniquity. They sit in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, they murder the innocent. Their eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. They lurk in secret like a lion in its den. They lurk that they may seize the poor. And they seize the poor and drag them off in their net. They stoop, they crouch, and the helpless fall by their might. They think in their heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Rise up, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the oppressed. Why do the wicked renounce God and say in their hearts, You will not call us to account? But you do see, indeed, you note trouble and grief that you may take it into your hands. The helpless commit themselves to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoers. Seek out their wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations shall perish from his land. O oh Lord, you will hear the desire of the meek. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice for the orphan and the oppressed so that those from earth may strike terror no more. Just in a moment of quiet here. God, we give you our grief, Lord. We carry this, the griefs and sorrows of those who are, who are immersed in them right now. God, we offer prayers to the King of Heaven. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, 
and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, it's good to be together. It's good to hold both joy and grief. And this is what Jesus does. Not denying the reality of our world, but overcoming it by his self-giving love. And that's what brings us here together today. So welcome. I have the joy to introduce our speaker for today, one of those seminarians who has recently completed his degree. Although, did we decide, like this, your degree completion is contingent upon this sermon today. I believe there's a representative from the, ser- the seminary here just making sure this happens. So <laughs> He's everywhere, man. All right. Uh, Zechariah has been uh, one of those people that if you've been here more than one week, you've probably seen him doing eight different things. <laughs> That's true. And uh, he's been such an incredible gift to us in, in, in every way. Uh, just his joy is contagious. And so he's one of those people that before the service, before we gather, makes it fun to be here and fun to be moving stuff around. And so uh, he's been preparing a word for us from Ephesians today. And so I'm so grateful that I get to uh, turn the mic over to him. And we will be blessed by him in the same way that you've blessed us so much, Zechariah. So thank you. I'll turn that on. I'm going to pray for you. The yeah. mic is on. All right. And it, it is, is yours. Jesus, I thank you for Zechariah. God, I thank you for his, uh, his love for you. God, I thank you for all that you've, you've done in his life over the, over the three years, God, that we've mm. been able to, to be a part of it. And God, just as a, as a prayer of, of blessing over this time, Lord, we pray that the words that he says, God, would be uh, words that are just hard won from his life, from the furnace of what you're doing in him, and that they would be a blessing to us. But God, more so, we, just, we pray prayers of, of gratefulness for his presence in our midst. We pray blessing, God. God, blessing as he fares well along the road. God, blessing as he goes to his next point on the, des- on the journey, Lord, Lord, that you would be with him. So we're grateful, Lord. We anticipate hearing from your Holy Spirit through him. And uh, just thank you, Lord. We love you. Tune in, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. All right. I think I'm in a good spot. I saw Soren preaching from a stool last time I was up, so... I'm going to preach from a stool like Soren. Yeah, um, like Ian said, my name is Zachariah. Um, I've been a seminary intern throughout this last year, and uh, I've been here all of three years. Um, If any of you remember Ryan Pierce, he invited me to this church like the first day that I showed up in Princeton, and I've been here pretty much ever since. so yeah, um, I did just graduate yesterday. Officially, I have the degree, so <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> but uh, I think preaching here today is, that's what I consider the final act of uh, a seminary career because Ecclesia has been here, um, been my home for three years, just like the seminary has been. Um, it's my honor to preach, and today, um, today's word is to show what this place has meant to me and so many others. Um, With that, I'm going to read the scripture passage for y'all. Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. This is the word of the Lord. 
Um, let's, uh, let's pray real quick. May the pe- grace and peace of Christ be with today's word. May the Holy Spirit guide my lips and my mind and always for the glory of God above. Amen. When I was uh, writing the sermon, I was trying to figure out why this letter was sent, like what the background, the setting of um, this letter was. I'm somebody who really enjoys knowing settings, backgrounds. One of my favorite books is uh, The Silmarillion, which is basically just 500 pages of background for The Lord of the Rings. (laughs) So that said, uh, Ephesians, uh, this letter, was written while the early church was subjected to the rule of Rome an empire that was oppressive to both Jews and Christians at that time. This letter is reconciling what it means to be both Jewish and Christian under the rule of the Roman powers. Because of that, Ephesians is building a new theology of sorts for the time about a new relationship between Jews and Gentiles. For Jewish Christians at that time, they had a heritage as Yahweh's chosen nation, but now Jesus has opened up the family of God. Gentile Christians are trying to learn who they are in this new religion, trying to find how to follow Jesus well, even though they aren't Jews and aren't as familiar with the law and the prophets. Ephesians is trying to answer all of this with a brand new theology for early Christians. For us today, even this far from those days long ago, I think there are two important aspects of this passage that we can take forward as a church and as followers of Jesus. I think understanding people and understanding place is what this passage gives us today. And through, the, through those things, we are given a view of what it means to be a community together in Christ. This passage in the letter of Ephesians uses a lot of words to talk about people. Strangers, aliens, members, citizens, saints, apostles, prophets. All of these words emphasize how important personhood is. Ephesians is building the idea of a new people of God, one without the boundary line between Gentile and Jew. Earlier in chapter 2, it says the dividing wall has been broken down between the Gentiles and Jews, that in Christ, we are brought together into a family of God, even though Gentiles aren't descended from Abraham. This may seem like kind of old news to a lot of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ today, but I'd like to put some context into what this means to the church in Ephesus and the rest of the early church. For the entirety of the Jewish and Hebrew tradition, it was about them and God. It was their privilege to be the chosen nation. Um, Ian talked a little bit about this uh, last week, but I think it's worth saying again. Israelites were the conduit between the nations of the world and Yahweh. And even then, only one tribe, the Levites, were given to administer the rites and religious ceremonies that connected them with God. Even then, only one high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, and even then, only once a year on the Day of Atonement. This is not about exclusivity or difficulty in reaching God. I am more talking about what a privilege the Israelites held in being the chosen nation of God. Of course, this would lead to some sort of conflict for the early church with Jewish Christians who had this heritage and Gentiles who are suddenly part of the family. Um, to me, it's kind of like coffee. Um, I've been, I'm a barista. I've been around coffee for five or six years. <laughs> Shout out. Uh, I've learned how it's farmed, how it's distributed, how it's traded, how it's roasted, how it's brewed. Um, I love coffee, and I think that the way to truly experience coffee is to drink it without cream, without sugar, just black. 
But the truth about coffee is that it's for everyone. It's not just for me. Some people add cream, some people add sugar. I don't personally like that, but it's important that that's how they can enjoy their coffee. The coffee is what's most important, that people are drinking it and enjoying it. The Jewish Christians at that time had an entire lineage that showed them how to be with God, how to enjoy God. Yet in Christ, Gentile believers are new believers and coming in. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I lost my place. <laughs> Ephesians is blending those two families together into one community and pointing them towards Jesus above all. Gentile and Jewish believers are part of the same family, and the method of coming to God is, more important, is less important than simply coming to God at all. Trusting in Jesus that whoever we are, we can go to God and find love. I think that's part of the lesson here. We may have ideas about how to come to God, how to enjoy God. I think what Ephesians is showing us is that God is bigger than us, that God is for anyone who comes to Christ and says they want to know him. Jesus has opened up the kingdom of God. He has removed the veil in the temple and welcomed the whole earth into the nation of chosen people. The work that was done by the priests and the Levites is opened up to all who seek to follow Jesus. The priests would be the bridge between God and the rest of the nation of Israel. Now it is up to us to be the bridge as Christians to the rest of the world. Through us, people can learn about who God is, and in our actions, we show who Jesus was and what he did for humanity. The floodgates of salvation have opened up to all the world, and in thankfulness, we share that news. Yet I think it's important to have humility, that at one time, we, the Gentiles, were strangers and aliens, but Christ welcomes us into the family of God, despite anything we are or are not. We as Christians get to stand on the shoulders of apostles like Peter, Matthew, and John, but also prophets like Daniel, Deborah, and Jeremiah. We were welcomed in, and we should hold that attitude of humility to anyone and everyone who wishes to meet with Jesus. This is what it is to be the people of God, to be welcoming and humble and always thankful for what Jesus did in welcoming us home. But home is a place. I mentioned earlier there are two parts of this passage that I think are helpful, people and also place. We saw the words talking about people. Notice all the words talking about place. Household, foundation, cornerstone, structure, temple, dwelling place. The idea of place is just as important to the early church as the idea of people, of personhood. These words are used to illustrate what this new people of God, this new community looks like. Remember the context of this passage. Ephesians is trying to build a new theology of community between Gentiles and Jews, but also is in the shadow of the Roman Empire, an empire that takes what it wants and crucifies any dissenters. It is no wonder that the, new Im that the imagery being used for a new theology is a new temple, a new dwelling place for God here on this earth, a safe haven for the newly formed and united community of believers in Christ. We are the kingdom of God on this earth. And it is through the community of believers that all are welcome. Yet we believe and hope for another dwelling place, one at the end of all days, when there is no temple, just God. And all of the earth is standing with the angels and saints together. This is the tension of being a Christian, to belong to a kingdom that is right now, but also not yet. We hope for a place, and we hope for the day when we can be home, but it is not just yet. That word kingdom 
or household, or even temple are words that have double meaning to us as Christians. It means the community of believers, but it also means hope in the future. For a place we can uh, call home and be fully united with our Creator. In my last sermon here at Ecclesia, back in October, uh, I talked about the fall of humanity, the breaking of shalom that we had with God in the garden through the sin of humanity. We today hope for restoration of that shalom, the completion of the work done by Jesus in his death and resurrection. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we are talking about us today, us as the bridge between God and the world. Yet we also think of hope for a future world where God needs no bridge, and we are simply given to enjoy the fruits of living in the garden with eternity. The idea of place in Ephesians comes with the tension of being both the dwelling place of God and the hope to be once again in the dwelling place of God. Ecclesia, as a church, knows the tension of being a home and hoping for a home. Throughout three years of our church's life, we've met in the Garden Theater, the Middle School Auditorium, here at the Arts Center, and all those weeks online through the pandemic. We hope for a place, and maybe we'll have one someday, but even though Ecclesia may not have a home, You've been a home. You've been a home to me um, throughout the three years that I've been a seminary. Sorry. <laughs> a home for other Princeton students and seminarians. It's not the place that's drawn me to Ecclesia, even though the middle school auditorium was pretty nice. <laughs> it's the community. It's the people that brought me here. Oh, Ryan Pierce. <laughs> As a church, Ecclesia has been the example of a dwelling place. It's been an example of a home, not in where it is, but in who you are. Whatever the future takes this church to, keep that at the center. No matter what building Ecclesia is in, be the people that are welcoming and have Jesus at the, as the cornerstone of this dwelling place. I said Ephesians has two important aspects, but it's really just one. People and place are united in Jesus. We are the citizens, we are the dwelling place, and we hope for the day when we're truly home. Our text in Ephesians is about building entirely new ideas about what it means to be a Christian in the first century, about a new and different community made up of Jews, Gentiles, Roman citizens, servants, and slaves, all brought together through Jesus Christ in order to show Jesus and his radical love for the world. Today, we don't have to build a new theology on how to have community, but can rely on the tradition of believers like the Ephesians to interpret new and innovative ways to show today's world what it means to be the community of Christ. One of these believers that we can benefit from was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian who wrote a little book on Christian community called Life Together. It's really short. You can read it. <laughs> In it, he uh, talks about what it means to be this new and different community of believers in the world that we live in today. He writes, Christian community is not an ideal that we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all of our fellowship is in Jesus Christ alone the more serenely shall we think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. Bonhoeffer resisted the authorities in his country of Nazi Germany because of his faith, so much so 
that he was killed because of it. His example and the examples of many like him are part of what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God beyond the citizen of a nation. If we profess Jesus as our Lord, then he is our only ruler and master. Our entire community of faith looks different than the communities of the world because our purpose is not solely to support one another, but to welcome in anyone who wishes to enter. The radical nature of Christian community is that it lives to care for and love those who are not part of the community, to love so much that others want to join this community, to meet Jesus. We do not live to sustain ourselves. We live to bring life to others. Jesus built up this community and welcomed us in. We did not create this faith or this love, but it was given to us anyway. It was given to us so we can give to others. Verse 22 says we are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. It's a passive voice indicating we're not the ones doing the building. It is God who does the work of making us into a dwelling place, that by God's hands, we are formed into a new community of believers. This is what Bonhoeffer was writing about, recognizing our passivity in the establishment of a community, but can participate in it, which hopefully creates an attitude of humility in welcoming others in. What does this mean for us here now in the distant future from the time of the Ephesians? What does it mean to be the people of God and the dwelling place of God here on this earth? One thing that Ephesians makes clear is that the kingdom of God does not belong to any one nation. And I think that was just as important for Jewish Christians to hear in the first century as American Christians here in the 21st. It is through our actions and our lives that people see and understand who Jesus is. This is again where humility comes in. We had no part in building the foundation of faith. Our cornerstone is Jesus. Those of us who are Gentile were not part of the chosen nation of God before Jesus, and it is only because of Jesus that we are given a place in this family. That citizenship in the kingdom of God means that we are to care about others in a way that goes beyond nations and kingdoms of this world. Citizenship is itself an important topic here in America, debating who should be welcomed in or not. Here in Princeton, like many towns throughout America, though many of those who are cooks or cleaners are the, the working class, are undocumented. They are part of this town and support this place, but have no rights to vote or health care like those of us who are U.S. citizens. We, as the citizens of the kingdom of God, are more than just a citizen of this nation. We are called to support and care about those who cannot protect themselves, to welcome them into our earthly home, and also to welcome them into the kingdom of God. Our spiritual citizenship comes with responsibility, and that responsibility is to show the love and generosity of Jesus to anyone and everyone. It means using the privilege of being citizens of the nation like the U.S. to care for and protect those who don't have the same benefits as us. We are part of this world. It's also the part of the tension of being a Christian. We have to be able to talk about difficult issues. Issues like immigration, like Roe v. Wade, like mass shootings, and white supremacy and racism. I don't have all the answers, but I believe we must be able to care about people just as Jesus cared for the orphans and the widows. We must be the people to protect those who cannot protect themselves, to show the, the love for the stranger and alien because we were once strangers and aliens. Our citizenship in the kingdom of God calls us to be part of a new community, one of radical love for the other and care for each other. 
the calling of a Christian isn't the easiest thing. It's easy for us as people to care about ourselves and our family, to block out the rest of the world and let others fend for themselves. Jesus calls us to more than that. We are called to a new community, one that is both a people and a place and is a refuge for anyone who needs it. I believe Ecclesia can be that community here in Princeton. I believe in this church. I believe in Ian as a pastor. And that I, I believe that we can be the light of Jesus here in Princeton and throughout the world. I'm going to bring the band back up. But uh, if any of you want prayer or just to talk to somebody who will listen, we have a prayer team that's going to meet in the back. Let's pray together. Jesus, you have called us to more than a normal life. I pray that we can seek you and lead others to you, no matter who they are or are not. You love the world and want us to show the world just how much you love it. Lord, give us the strength to love anyone and everyone just as you do. Amen. Thanks, man. We come now to the time where we come to the table. And it is the embodiment of the passage that Zechariah read that through God's spirit at work in us, we are being built into a dwelling place for God. And the scriptures are well-versed in saying two things at once. That means that we together collectively are being built into a dwelling place for God. As the Spirit is at work among us, we are being united in God's love. United from every, as Revelation says, from every tongue and tribe and nation and in America, from every socioeconomic and ethnic class, we are being brought together by His love for us. But it's also, the Scriptures can say at the same time that we are being the furnishings of our hearts and our lives, that God is making us holy because holiness is what the world is aching for. Somebody who has been with God, who has had their lives purged by his love, laid down their preferences, what Paul calls their flesh, their sinfulness, and met with God and found that God is redeeming us. And there's this beautiful interchange that happens at the table. You know, we don't think about this often, but the food that we eat, it, it's taken into our interiors, into our lives, and it makes us what we are. We are being built into a dwelling place for God. And that starts at this table. As we meet with God, as the Lord of all the universe looks us in the eyes and says, You are my child. You are my daughter, my son. Put down everything that would be an impediment to your life with me. Pick up this life because this is the only way to life and to fullness by what Jesus has done in forgiveness of sins in restoring us and reconciling us to God. We are being built into a dwelling place for the living God. And today, Jesus invites you to come to the table, to receive the grace of his body and his blood, to allow the slow and patient work of grace to transform us, both collectively and individually. And so just a moment, I'm going to invite the communion servers to come. And I want to say a couple things. First of all, uh, today we have some bread that you can take. 
with your hand and then dip it in the cup and then you can consume it right here. Second, it's an open invitation. It's Jesus' invitation, so we say it's his, but you're not compelled to come. If you sit in your chair when your row is called, it's okay. Nobody's going to ask why you didn't come. But feel free to come, because it is the grace of God that somehow in the mystery of what Jesus has done, it meets us here anew some 2,000 years later. And we receive his life, and we take that for our very lives. And so on the night Jesus was arrested, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. He took a cup and he blessed it. He said, this is the blood of my new covenant. The new dwelling place we would deign to build God a temple. And yet he wants our hearts. And he's made our hearts his own. So as we come to this table, let us receive the grace of that invitation. I'm going to invite the communion service to come. I'm going to pray a word of prayer over our Eucharist table of celebration. And then there'll be somebody in the middle to tell you when your row is to go. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, come. God, would you manifest your presence that is everywhere in this place in a unique way? God, would you allow us to lay down the, the distractions, God, the idols, the stuff we think we can't live without, to come to this table open-handed just to receive grace. So, God, I, I pray for a spirit of, of conviction, Lord, if there's, if there's things that are in us that are building up a wall that you have broken down, God, would you bring them to our mind? Would you help us to see that we can, because of what you've done, turn to you? God, I pray for a spirit of reconciliation, God. Lord, as we come to this table as a church, the beautiful myriad mosaic of your image, God, that would be a witness to a world that so often needs it, God, that there is a way beyond our ways. But also, Lord, in families, God, in relationships and friendships, Lord, that the table is the place where relationship is restored. So, God, would you have your way in our midst over these next few moments? Would you meet us here? We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. In the name of the Savior of the entire world.